All right, and welcome to episode 78 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Brian Murarescu. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name, with a forward by Graham Hancock. The book explores the role the, that psychedelics have played in the formation of Western civilization. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. And so to kind of start the ball rolling here. So our first question is going to be essentially when it comes to your background in religious studies. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? And when did you, I mean, I guess, when did you find something amiss about kind of what we need to, I guess, mainstream sort of know about religion and in particular Christianity? Good question. So I'm, uh, I was raised a good Catholic boy mm -hmm. uh, in, in Philadelphia. I went to 13 years of Catholic school, including four years with the Jesuits when I was studying Latin and Greek. And that's when those question marks started popping up, um, you know, because I, I, I was raised not really learning about the Greek. And then at, at some point, a couple of years into it, you know, you're reading the New Testament written in the sacred language of Greek and you're reading Homer and Plato written in the sacred language of Greek. And you, I mean, you have to start asking like, did, did these worlds ever intersect? And, and what did the, the roots of Christianity really look like? If they both drew from the Greek, was it just the language? Was it the culture? Like what was actually happening in those first decades after Jesus? And so even at like 15, I was kind of swept up in this hunt for the ancient mysteries. Wow. And how did psychedelics sort of uh, come into the picture? What, what sort of garnered your interest in that area? Uh, they fell out of the sky. <laughs> by complete accident. So uh, as you probably know, I'm a psychedelic virgin uh, to, to this day. Uh, and it was only in 2007 when I was reading the first studies that were coming out of Johns Hopkins on psilocybin, mm -hmm. uh, the active compound in magic mushrooms. Uh, I read this article in The Economist called The God Pill talking about how these people were having some kind of mystical experience, something like two thirds of the participants wound up describing their one and only dose of psilocybin as among the most meaningful in their lives. And today it's actually about 75%. If you ask Roland Griffiths at Hopkins, uh, this is, you know, it's now been about 20 years of the modern day iteration of these clinical trials. Uh, we're now looking at about, uh, you know, three and four people will walk away from one and only dose saying it was transformative. I mean, one of the most powerful experiences of their lives. And so it raises the, the big question, uh, for me, this is 12 years ago. I mean, if that's happening today, is it really so crazy to think that was happening 2,000 years ago, or maybe even 20,000 years ago, or maybe 200,000 years ago? And this is where all these ideas about hyper-reality come from. Right. And what sort of, when you started looking into the text, how did you sort of piece it together that it's possible that some of these texts or um, some of these stories reflect potential sort of rituals that involve psychedelics? Right. So, I mean, there's, there's a rabbit hole there. Um, you so know, how about Eleusis, uh, for example? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, once you touch one, you're, you're, you're touching all of them. Um, so we're, 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 we're describing mystery cults here, mystery religions. Mm -hmm. And the easiest definition for that is, you know, this, this very uh, formalistic, ceremonial, ritual series of events that involve some kind of death and rebirth. And that's a definition that I could apply to Eleusis, the ancient spiritual capital uh, in Greece, or I could apply that to the mysteries of Dionysus, the god of wine and ecstasy, or the mysteries of Jesus. I mean, they were mysteries, by the way, in, in the very non-crazy, non-esoteric gospel of Mark. You know, when Jesus is out there preaching in parables and preaching his gospel and his message, uh, you know, he speaks in code and, and you know, the quite openly speaks in code. These stories don't make sense at first blush. And when he's asked why he preaches in parables, Jesus says that, you know, these are the musteria, the mysteries. The, these are the things to be communicated to the initiates and not to ordinary mortals is how one of the biblical lexicons defines that. Uh, so when you look at all these different traditions, and I focus on the ancient Mediterranean, obviously, uh, but, but what you have is this death and rebirth often accompanied by the consumption of like sacred food. Uh, what, what Terence McKenna would call the food of the gods, right? Whether or, you know, it was ambrosia that filtered down into mortals as this special potion at Eleusis or the wine of Dionysus or the wine of Jesus. I mean, at their root, these are called immortality potions. Uh, the concept that you drink this, you consume the God and you become the God in that process. Yeah. Yeah. And then so in terms of like, let's say just Christianity in particular, right? What was it that you found about 
sort of going back to the text, what was it that you found about the Gospels that made you sort of question whether or not the, the sort of interpretation that we get in the mainstream is the right one, like let's say of the Eucharist, or whether there was some deeper meaning behind it that really was related to the occult or to the mystery schools? Right. I mean, so again, you don't have to look at the esoteric literature or like the Nag Hammadi corpus or this extra biblical tradition, which is super fascinating, the Gnostic tradition. I mean, even if you look at the Gospel of John, right, for example, and I get I get pretty wonky in the book over a couple chapters uh, uh, dissecting the, the Greek language of John. But I base a lot of it on this great book by a fairly mainstream biblical scholar, Dennis McDonald in California. He wrote a great book a couple of years ago called The Dionysian Gospel. And when you start to look at the language that John uses, it's very, very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, it's, it, we think it was the last gospel ever written, but I mean, the whole thing, I mean, you know, Jesus's miracles begin with this water to wine miracle. You know, right. all, the, all these famous things that are, are you know, well aware uh, to us, um, you know, the, they only happen in John. Like the water to wine, the wedding at Cana only happens in John. And, you know, uh, ancient scholars will refer to that as just one example, as like the signature miracle of Dionysus. I mean, not, not just, you know, uh, weirdly reminiscent of, but I mean, the signature miracle in this tradition where you know, some of the priests would, would drop basins full of water in the temple at Dionysus for hundreds of years before Jesus, mm -hmm. like in Elis, in the Greek district of Elis on the Peloponnese. They, they would do this, come back in the morning, the waters miraculously turned into wine. And so, you know, when, when John includes a scene like that, and he's the only person to include a scene like that, the obvious message is that he's trying to present Jesus as either an altar Dionysus, who knows, a second coming of Dionysus, the epiphany of Dionysus. Uh, we don't know, but I mean, it's, it's, it's fair to call his gospel that Dionysian gospel, which again, raises the much bigger question. If, if John was trying to present Jesus in kind of this, this pagan lore and these legends that had survived for centuries, what else was he doing? And what did that Eucharist actually mean to John and some of the earliest Greek speaking Christians? Right. And um, I believe, so from your appearance on uh, Joe Rogan's show, um, I noticed that there was a mention that there's a relationship between Amanita Muscaria and uh, Santa Claus or, and Christmas. Um, could you maybe speak on that? Uh, I'm not very well familiar with that. Yeah, th this is one of Joe's fa favorite, uh, favorite <laughs> theories. Uh, so a lot of this comes from like the, the ethno-historical literature, the ethnographical literature in Siberia. So it's, it's known that the Amanita is consumed by some of the Siberian shamans. Uh, it's, it's also been documented uh, that they would drink uh, the urine of the reindeer in order to consume this. The idea being that when the, when the Amanita muscaria passes through the reindeer, they have a way of metabolizing some of the more toxic alkaloids. So by the time it gets passed through, it's actually a more pleasant experience. Uh, this has been documented elsewhere too. So there are all these crazy stories from the late 19th century, but I mean, but it raises lots of really interesting questions about reindeer, you know, the red and white speckled Amanita, perhaps reminiscent of the red and white speckled Santa Claus, who like the shamans in Siberia will, uh, would descend through the opening in, in the tent uh, into, the, into their holiday homes. I mean, all this, all this really fun stuff uh, makes you wonder about flying reindeer. And you know what all of this makes me think of all together, just um, in terms of the story of the shamans and how it's related to Santa Claus, how kind of Christianity is linked to these other more sort of tribal or more esoteric religions. It's, you know, when we think about kind of humanity, right, we always want to separate things, right? We always want to kind of put things up in the hierarchy and say, well, this is better than this. And sort of like, you know, these things over here are not or dissimilar than these things up here. So what that makes me think of is like, you know, a kind of American exceptionalism, right? That we as a country are the best and we're so dissimilar to the rest of the world. And when we think about evolution, right, the sort of reason why people are, well, not everybody, obviously, or anywhere close, but the reason why people are against it is because we'd like to see humans as like sort of the pinnacle of existence. And then here these different animals right and so brian do you feel like that that's something that happened with christianity too that in a way to kind of separate themselves from like or i'm sorry in a way to kind of place themselves as the sole sort of um as the sole sort of uh let's say purveyor or possessor i guess of sort of truth and reality that they had to separate themselves and distance themselves from these more tribal religions because for them they believe just like i don't know i guess we believe if we're sort of descended from animals that somehow sullies us or makes us less glorious that let's say christians and the kind of Abrahamic religions would think of themselves as being less than if they were somehow connected to these more shamanic traditions. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say. It all happens in this cauldron in like the fourth century AD. I mean, so for a couple hundred years, Christianity is illegal, 
right? It's an, an illegal cult like the pagan mystery cults. Um, and it was targeted by you know, the, the state at the time for, for its secrecy and these heretical sacraments and you know, the, the, these underground ceremonies, again, that did not take place in church. There were no churches, right? right. There, there was no brick and mortar basilicas until the fourth century AD after Constantine. And then that's when you begin to see the, the patriarchal hierarchy of the, the, the nation state really separating itself from the pagan past. I mean, it was, it was happening before then too, obviously with the church fathers, but at that point, and there's a great book that I reference in my book by Catherine Nixie uh, called the, the, the Darkening Age. Um, it's the, and the, the, the destruction of all this classical literature and statuary and buildings and temples that was really taking place there. I mean, the, there was a rampage, uh, you know, so we can't blame the destruction of the whole past on you know, the emerging Christian church, but there was an attempt to distance it and separate itself, distinguish itself from what had come before, only naturally, you know, creating a blank slate, uh, you know, where, where history begins with Jesus, essentially. Um, but, you know, the, the, the ideas that I explore in the book aren't that, or at least they weren't that controversial. So Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I often talk about, wrote a very, you know, well-known paper in the mid 20th century about this pagan continuity hypothesis. Uh, you can Google uh, Dr. King's paper, uh, The Influence of the Mystery Religions on Christianity. And, you know, we talk about all this stuff. So whether it was conscious or unconscious, clearly, you know, Christianity is born into a world. And I focus on the ancient Greek world where some of these crazy, potentially psychedelic sacraments were bleeding their way into early Christianity. I mean, it's, it's, it's at least worth a look. Yeah. And is it true that uh, Greek philosophers, even some famous ones, actually uh, participated in rituals at Eleusis, like uh, they would uh, take in something, a substance called soma, if I'm not mistaken. So a uh, soma is the, the Eastern tradition that comes from the Vedic uh, um, in India, in the subcontinent. But the, ah. the, the, the potion at Eleusis was called the Kukion, but you're quite right that it was some of the best and brightest of the Greco-Roman world from Plato, Pindar, Sophocles to Marcus Aurelius, Cicero. Cicero, the Roman order in the first century BC, he called Eleusis the most exceptional and divine thing that Athens ever produced, right? So think of all the things that Athens produced. Eleusis, not democracy, not the arts and sciences and the university and philosophy, uh, not any of this stuff, but Eleusis, right? The drinking of that potion, that beatific vision, that overcoming of, of death, and that, that guaranteeing of the afterlife was the most exceptional thing Athens ever produced. So, I mean, you know, what was that potion? What was this magical potion that called to pilgrims for close to 2000 years? Yeah. And was there, since I know a lot of, uh, well, I don't know if a lot, but as sort of uh, when you read kind of Plato and Aristotle, sometimes, sometimes they was kind of, um, I'm not sure exactly about Aristotle, but definitely Plato. They would trace back wisdom to sort of ancient Egypt. And they would pretty much say, well, you know, a lot of what we do or a lot of what we think here is kind of sort of founded in the things and the teachings of the ancient, of that kind of part of the ancient world. Mm -hmm. And so do you think that maybe it's even possible that that sort of ritual of going to the underworld and sort of being reborn, do you think that that was actually, well, maybe could have been part of the sort of idea of the Egyptian afterlife, where, you know, kind of the Pharaoh would go down, he would go down into the other world, sort of he would slay, you know, the demons, and then he would obviously rise above or rise out of kind of out of whatever the ashes or out of the underworld. And then he would essentially kind of bring forth Ra to the world, you know, for light and life to the rest of the citizens and to kind of civilization. Do you think that there's mm. a connection there? Absolutely. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I wish I wish I could have explored more of it in this book. It'll be part of the sequel for sure. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I mean, you know, Plato spent several years in Egypt. A lot of myth and lore uh, was picked up by, by, by the Greeks, Plato among them, who went to Egypt and brought it back. You know, there is no Greek miracle. Most, most classical scholars now agree on that. I mean, the, the ancient Greece didn't just appear from one day to the next, that it was taking in all these influences from North Africa and the Near East and elsewhere. Uh, you know, so as part of that would have been these mystery traditions, which we know, uh, that Egypt was pretty well known for, at least its fascination with death. And so the big question about these rituals in Egypt, right, is, is were, they, were they funerary rites? And you think about the oldest, you know, testimony that comes from ancient Egypt, right? Like in the pyramid text or the coffin text, things like this. Were they really talking about death or was it uh, an initiation while alive into the mystery? I mean, this, this is, it hasn't been resolved. That, that's the really big question. There's a really great book on this, um, Shamanic Wisdom in the Pyramid Texts, mm -hmm. which everybody should check out. But I, I like the notion of, you know, some the, this, the, the duat and the afterlife journey taking place in this lifetime, 
because uh, if you do ask Plato or you, if, if you look into the literature, the way they described philosophy was, you know, th those who engage with philosophy in the right way are practicing nothing else but dying and being dead. Right. And this is what Egypt was famous for. It's what the mystery cults in Greece were famous for confronting death here and now in this lifetime uh, and not waiting until you die, because where else is the kingdom of heaven? Uh, but right here right now. It's what the Gnostics said. It's what some of the volunteers in today's psilocybin and psychedelic experiments are all saying. It's, it's right here available. Yeah, it's that idea of uh, dying before you die, right? Uh, that sort of ego death that, uh, that usually mostly people will experience, or maybe they won't ever experience, but usually that comes towards the end of your life. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, if these psychedelics afford an ability to sort of dive into that, to sort of experience that ego death, that's interesting because that experience is available to us, as you said, here and now. And it, it's something that should be uh, researched more, maybe um, hopefully something that'll become legal um, at some point. in more parts of the US. Uh, we had somebody on, um, his name is uh, Derek Barris. Oh, yeah, but I know, I know Derek. Brian knows him. Oh, <laughs> yeah, awesome. he was on Derek's awesome. show. Yeah, yeah, right. So he talks about uh, psychedelic assisted uh, therapy and how that's becoming more of a thing, yeah. and how uh, MDMA, I believe, um, in 2002 will be something that's allowed to be used in sessions. Right. Um, so it's interesting the the progress where these sorts of things are, you know, where it's where it's going. Um, and I don't know. I think uh, books like book, books like yours garner a lot of interest in this area, and it's it's interesting to see um, how psychedelics played an important role in, in in history, right? And and to a lot of uh, enlightened thought as well with with the Greeks. Yeah, and how it's all kind of linked together, which is I think really interesting. That these experiences that they had in the mystery schools are very similar to the experiences that people now have. Like, um, I don't know if you would go, like, let's say, take ayahuasca and you're in the ceremony. Like, I mean, the kind of assumption now is that, like, yes, you're sort of linked to these ancient ancestors. And so, I mean, Brian, can you tell us a little bit about the experience itself? Um, is there any sort of literature that actually tells us what these mystery school experiences were like and these kind of ceremonies or rituals? I mean, sure. We, again, we have, I often use this phrase, we have hints and clues. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we have hints and clues like from the hymn to Demeter about what was happening in Eleusis. That's from 2,700 years ago. We have little phrases. I mean, even Plato talks about being initiated into the holiest of the mysteries, uh, catching sight of the, that, that blessed vision, right? This concept of, of the vision. Uh, th that's, that's pretty universally attested to in Eleusis, this concept of the vision. Um, which is really interesting. Even th there's this great scholar, uh, Karl Kerenyi, who even uses the Christian term beatific vision for that. I mean, he compares it to the mystical state, the blessed state of Christianity. I mean, this is in the 1960s. He like quite conscientiously uses that term because this notion of the vision pops up so much. Uh, and so when, when we're trying to figure out what, what that meant, you know, there are lots of crazy theories about, you know, uh, some kind of uh, prop work, you know, uh, puppets, being involved or, you know, or, or stagecraft being involved in the construction of these mysteries. We've never found anything on site that speaks about a play. I mean, maybe there were actors and actresses, maybe there, that was something to it. Uh, but what we do know is that 3000 people would cram their way into this temple of Demeter uh, mm -hmm. at Eleusis and walk away transformed. Um, and we do know a potion was involved at some point. We don't know the exact sequence of events, but we know that you know, a gong was rung at some point, a light flashed up to the sky uh, and people walked away claiming that they had conquered death. I mean, so what could that possibly be? You know? So uh, erase all the crazy theories from the 19th century. Uh, and in 1978, this trio, uh, Gordon Wasson, Albert Hoffman, who discovered LSD and Karl Ruck said, you know, th this had to be a psychedelic vision. Uh, and what they proposed was that ergot, this natural fungus that grows on the cereal crops that they said, you know, that, that there had to be some kind of like LSD like potion derived from ergot that they were using in this brew in this archaic beer uh, in this, in this rite that transformed mortals into immortals. But there, there was no, you know, scientific data to prove that for years and years. So, you know, I took it upon myself to uh, scour all these journals to see if there was any data there. Oh, can you tell us about that? <laughs> so, <laughs> That's what I spent the, the longest time trying to figure out because, you know, I've read the ancient texts and it, it's, it's kind of sexy, you know, you, there, there's clearly something happening there. Uh, and it's really interesting, even the notion of a mystery. I mean, what was happening inside this darkened, you know, torch lit hall 
that, that called to the best and brightest of antiquity. I mean, this was their real religion. They didn't think that Zeus was hurling thunderbolts at us. They didn't think Poseidon was out, you know, uh, riding the waves of the seas. I mean, th these are just stories. When, when, when they were looking to pierce through the meaning of life, they went to Eleusis or they drank a cup of wine in honor of Dionysus and, and did a thousand other things. Uh, so I was fascinated with the, just trying to get scientific data on what this stuff was eventually came across this, this discipline, archaeochemistry, which is using all this high-tech instrumentation to look into these ancient containers to see what was actually there. Uh, and so, you know, from there, talking to folks at Harvard and MIT and just trying to piece together this, this data that's largely gone underreported and eventually made my way to Spain and found this one study from over 20 years ago where they in fact found uh, this tiny chalice about two inches high uh, mm -hmm. that had once contained the, the residue of beer from about 2200 years ago, just in line with the classical mysteries. Mm -hmm. And in addition to the beer, there was also that freaking ergot. I mean, the same ergot that was prophesied back in 1978 to have spiked this potion. And there's this tiny chalice, which is in a Greek shape, full of beer and ergot from 2200 years ago inside a sanctuary dedicated to the goddesses Demeter and Persephone. I mean, you know, all the pieces line up and it's, it's, it's the really first compelling data I've, I've ever seen to substantiate the notion that psychedelics were actually involved in these mysteries. Yeah, and what's the relationship between Ergot and um, Salem witch trials? Uh, I'm, I'm aware that um, it, when, uh, witches were burned at the stake for thinking that they could do uh, magic and, and all of that. And I believe that the, if I remember correctly, because this is anecdotal, the story I heard um, that uh, due to um, uh, ergot uh, being in that area or few or like uh, from the bread um, in that area, something like that, uh, people would uh, inhale. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, like people thought that they were seeing images or mm -hmm. uh, like uh, fantastical images. And um, they would think that these uh, witches were doing them and that they were involved, but it was actually uh, ergot was involved, something like that. Uh, do, you, do you know anything about that? Or Yeah, it's, it's possible. It's reported a lot in, in the toxicology literature uh, in the 20th century, um, going back into the middle ages, uh, you know, uh, root, bouts of uh, ergotism, which is the, the this 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 toxic ergot outbreaks. Uh, it was known as the ignis sacer, the holy fire, or a Saint Anthony's fire, um, because you, you would typically get all these weird, you know, side effects, gangrene and convulsions, and not very fun things. Maybe mass hallucinations. Uh, so there, there was something reported about um, you know bread that had gone moldy. It's, it's essentially moldy bread, uh, and, and that gets uh, that got dulled out in France in the 20th century, and they think possibly in Salem as well. That the, the I, I've seen studies that that the climactic conditions were were, were just right to produce. Uh, a rusty crop, what they call, uh, and that maybe some of this had infected some of the some of the bread or beer of of the time. I need to go and, and test some vessels in in in, uh, in Salem. Yeah, and I mean, going back to academia, why do you think that it's so for so long, and for I guess yeah, for so long and for so many people that it's been so difficult for them to accept that psychedelics were part of these religious rituals? That sort of um, that I mean, if especially if we're talking about like mysterious things, and um, if we're talking about kind of like you know the metaphysical or whatever, the things that are beyond kind of perception. How come you feel like it's been so hard for academics to accept that? Like, yeah, I mean, when we're talking about metaphysical, I mean, it's kind of actually hard to disassociate it from psychedelic use. Yeah, I think I, th I don't think there's any grand conspiracy. I just I think it's just one of those blind spots. Um, mm -hmm. And this is this is not me saying this. Uh, this is Anthony Beaver, this this well-known historian, uh, said that it's the old problem of specialization that not a lot of historians know a lot about drugs. I mean, it, it's that simple. And we even have a lot of these old treatises uh, in Greek, for example, um, that that have not been translated in, into English. All all these all these old books about drugs and drug compounds and simples. Uh, that, that remain untranslated. It's just, it's not the kind of thing that most classicists or linguists are studying because it's really complex stuff. I mean, you need a background in biochemistry and pharmacology and anatomy uh, and things that most linguists don't have. I mean, so it, it, it takes a really special skill set. number one, to even pick up some of the ancient pharmacological literature, number two, to try and interpret it, uh, number three, to look for the hard data to corroborate it. Number four, to put that all together and create, you know, a more comprehensive picture 
of the past, but you know, I think this is what archaeochemistry is now doing. It's about two decades old, which as the scientists go is still relatively young. Uh, um, you know, so, but there are new studies coming out every year. The instrumentation, um, the technology is getting better with each season. So, um, you know, I present this book as kind of the vanguard of some of these archaeochemical, archaeobotanical studies, at least when it comes to classical antiquity and early Christianity. But I mean, the truth is there's a lot more coming down the pike. There's so many containers, so many chalices that have never been tested. Uh, mm -hmm. So many field sites where the organic residue had maybe been contaminated, not properly captured. You know, so I'm hoping that in, in future excavations and future testing, you're going to see a lot more of this stuff. I mean, we're, we've only scratched the surface on what our ancestors were doing. Yeah, and let's say, and I mean, let's say you present this evidence to people, and I'm sure you already have had what I'm about to say happen to you. Um, what do you think some of sort of the fear or the resistance or the defensiveness is about? Like, I guess, why is it so difficult for so many people to say, okay, you know, I'm going to keep an open mind about this and let's just see, maybe there is a connection. Like, how come you feel like people are kind of so against it and so kind of rigid in their thinking about religion? I don't know. I, 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 I would speculate that it has nothing to do with psychedelics and just, you know, our, our, our basic, um, uh, the, 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 the slow pace at which our thinking changes, maybe it's just habit or routine. I don't know. I mean, the war on drugs certainly has a role to play in this. Um, in addition to the, the, the those gaps in, in, you know, in analysis that I was talking about, uh, you know, the, the, we were born into a really weird time where these substances just are made illegal and untestable, unresearchable for the longest time. I mean, it's hard to think of a class of compounds that just went off the table, largely because of a sociocultural backlash in the wake of the 60s. You know, um, post-Nixon, this stuff wasn't studied for several decades until the Hopkins team, in, in a really methodical way, brought psilocybin back online in the laboratory. But I mean, imagine three, three decades without proper scientific uh, investigation. Cannabis is still, it's really hard to study cannabis, actually. Uh, I talked to lots of uh, MDs, PhDs who are studying this stuff. It's easier to study psilocybin than cannabis, uh, this, this natural plant, uh, largely because of the way it's been, it's been classified and scheduled. Uh, you know, so the, the fog of war is lifting, as you were alluding to. I mean, psilocybin is, is being regulated in Oregon, for example, for therapeutic use. I mean, this stuff is going to be available to people in a couple years in these, in these licensed facilities. Uh, which I think is just going to be a template for other states to come. Maybe the federal government, uh, FDA gets involved in five years time or less. I mean, so we're living at a time when all this is about to change. Uh, and frankly, I haven't, I haven't found too much pushback in response to your, to your question. What, what I found is a lot of open-mindedness. As long as we talk, uh, you know, kind of um, open-mindedly and, and diplomatically about this stuff. Yeah. And you know, I was wondering uh, why, after all this research that you've done, why would you, I mean, or let me put this this way, you describe yourself as a psychedelic virgin, right? Uh, why do you think that you haven't tried it yet? Or do you ever plan to? Um, what's, what's your reasoning behind <laughs> it? <laughs> I get this question a lot, as you can <laughs> probably imagine. Uh, it's, it's something on the horizon. I mean, I want it I have like a, a thousand answers. Uh, it, it's, I wanted to approach this investigation in the most objective way possible. And so that, that's, that's part of it. As I started investigating, I realized that, you know, if, if this is all true, you know, it, it's the hypothesis that we're still testing. I still want to continue testing, obviously. Uh, but with that said, if this is all true, what I find in the past are really sacred containers for this stuff. Uh, not, I mean, not just in traditional societies in the Amazon, you mentioned ayahuasca, for example, but like at the roots of at the roots of European Western civilization, if this if this was involved in, in ancient Greece and Italy and early Christianity, what, what you see are small groups of people getting together in a very intentional way, preparing for this kind of experience and creating a community to really incubate that, which, mm -hmm. you know, maybe I'm just not creative enough, but I don't I don't I don't see that today in the kind of authentically ancient way that I would want to participate in that. I mean, number one, to make it safe and efficacious. Um, what, what's happening at Hopkins and NYU and UCLA, that, that's already happening. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced in, in the therapeutic value of this stuff. Uh, but what I'm, what I'm still looking for is, is that, that historical component, uh, which, I mean, this stuff is still illegal. You know, it's, it's just, it's, it's not available in the kind of way that I sense the mysteries were celebrated in the past. So, you know, we're slowly putting the architecture together, maybe to, to resurrect one of these experiences in the 21st century. That, that's when I'll hop on board.
That's fascinating because uh, I, I think I see what you mean. You'd like it to be sort of, if you were even willing to participate, you'd like it to be sort of set up in this ritualistic sort of the way it was before with uh, the proper intention, maybe to communicate with uh, gods or goddesses or the goddess. But, but what's fascinating is uh, you don't think that um, like ayahuasca, for example, the way that they sort of conduct those um ceremonies uh, in peru for example with a with a shaman you don't think that kind of sort of uh, matches up with that uh ritualistic way of communicating with the uh, psychedelics or do you feel like you'd like to see more that developed further I, no I, th I, th I think it does for for them 100 percent for them and i know lots of people are, are called to ayahuasca sessions and and rogan and hancock were trying to get me into the amazon uh to, to do it for myself i mean i know I th if, if if that works for you and you're called to that i mean i i think it's i think it's fantastic um when i think about the kinds of things that that give me meaning and tapping into like my childhood growing up in the church um when i think about sacred religious experience, um, I don't immediately think about the jungle. I, I think about incense and stained glass. And, you know, I, I think about what was happening to me as, as, as a kid when I was learning about God and all these, and, and I'm not, you know, I just, I, I don't know what kind of Christian I am or what kind of, what kind of lapsed Catholic I am, but, you know, the, the myth that, that supported my first forays into this stuff was, was the myth of Judeo-Christianity. And then as I got older, the myth of the Greeks, uh, this is the the tradition that, that I tap back into. And I think a lot of people would find, not just me, I mean, I think a lot of lawyers and doctors and engineers and, and politicians and people who live in the US and Canada would, would also find meaning in the kinds of things that form that cultural network, that, that mythical network from, from our childhood. I mean, for better or worse, it's, it's, just, it's just what it was for me. So, you know, I, I would love to envision a space where, where that could be curated in, in a very sacred way that's just meaningful to me. Um, I think Graham mentioned this before. Uh, I forgot what they're called. They're legally allowed to perform ayahuasca rituals, Santo. Yes, yeah, there, there's a couple in the U.S. I mean, they're, they're based out of Brazil, but there's a couple in the U.S., uh, Santo Daime yeah. and uh, Uniado Vegetal. Uh, so, and the Native American church with peyote. Um, again, all perfectly sacred containers. But um, also but, not related, not something you would uh, resonate with. Understand. I mean, not, not, not personally. I mean, I would, listen, I would love to, I would love to attend a Native American ceremony. Uh, and I'd love to go to the Amazon someday. Uh, you know, I'd also love to go into upstate New York uh, in the fall and, and, and witness, participate in something that is kind of like the Eleusinian mysteries. Uh, this, this place that birthed the democracy that influenced the founding fathers of America, all of whom, you know, most of whom, uh, knew their Latin and Greek and, and built the society that kind of tried to incorporate all these values that filtered through the ancient Greeks to the Christians into, into the Western civilization that I, that I grew up in. Uh, and, and, and that I think has, has a powerful role in resurrecting the, those traditions, the, the, the sacred roots that can be found um, in, in our past. Yeah, and I remember, so this may be a vague and incorrect memory, but I'll just say it anyway. I, I think I remember in reading Manly Palmer Hall that there was a point in um, in the ancient Greek world where essentially the um, Eleusinian mysteries were something that was celebrated pre pretty much the entire community. That sort of, even though now they've become the mysteries or are known as the mysteries in the sense of like, um, they're only like esoteric or meant for the select few. That actually wasn't the case from my memory. I could be wrong. But I do remember him saying that there was essentially a yearly celebration that the entire community participated. And was that something that you found, Brian, or am I off? No, yeah, this question comes up a lot, too, about how exclusive they were, because right. when when you talk about the Eleusinian mysteries, I mean, even I, you know, because of, of what's left to us, I talk about folks like Plato and Marcus Aurelius and the elite of society. But technically, it was open to anybody who spoke Greek and hadn't committed murder, including women. Uh, and originally, it was it was an, a women's rite of initiation once a year and you would only participate once in your life. And this was a very community-based uh, activity that was administered by the Greek state for a long time. Uh, but that said, was, was also monopolized and controlled and, and very carefully programmed. Uh, so even if it was meant 
for everybody. Um, it was difficult to get in. You had to pay your dues and take time off from raising your family and doing your job to, to do this, which wasn't easy, by the way. So it was not for everybody, uh, which is why Christianity was so interesting because what, what I sensed there, and as I write in the book, is that the, the real innovation was not one of these mystery traditions. The real innovation wasn't the use of wine uh, you know, in, in, this, in this darkened hall with your friends to commune with the God. What was interesting about Christianity is that when I read the accounts of the Eucharist and the Last Supper, what I see is the mysteries coming indoors. And, and I see the, these, these very sacred mysteries coming into the dining room. Uh, and that was unique to early Christianity. I mean, Eleusis, you had to go to the temple, uh, mysteries of Dionysus, these were celebrated at like outdoor churches in the forests and mountains. Uh, it was considered sacrilegious to participate in this kind of stuff at home. Uh, when you read the Last Supper, it's kind of like a mystery tradition came indoors. And, and became democratized and domesticated. Uh, so again, I, I do think, I mean, the, the maverick that Jesus was, I think he was trying to incubate some of these mysteries and democratize them for the, for the classical world. At least that's the way John presents it. Interesting. And so initially it was exclusive to women? The mysteries of Eleusis were, they were founded as women's rights. Um, mm -hmm. And then if you think about the mysteries of Dionysus, also not exclusive to women, but I would, I mean, easily led and, and managed by women, the Minads, the followers of Dionysus, the priestesses. Uh, it, it, was, it was they who were in charge. Well, and when did the shift happen? And that, well, and so to continue that thought, and also in early Christianity, you find women involved, hmm. uh, which is, which is interesting. Not the, not the history of Christianity that I was taught, uh, but mm -hmm. if you descend in, into the catacombs under Rome, like I did, and, and inspect some of these early frescoes, you see women leading something like a proto-Eucharistic mass uh, in the in the second, third centuries AD, which is really which is really strange stuff. Um, you know, women were were kind of integral. Again, if you just think about it, there's no churches, there's no basilicas. You know, these are dining rooms and homes. Private homes was where Christianity survived in those years. Uh, this was the women's domain. Wealthy women are mentioned across Paul's letters who were hosting these initial Eucharistic banquets. So, so women were very, very important in the growth and development of the church until obviously the hierarchy, the bureaucracy takes over in, in the fourth century AD. But before that, you find lots of examples of female leadership. Which is interesting because, I mean, not to necessarily take it here, because I'm sure none of us are particularly experts in this, but there's always the argument that, you know, kind of based on evolution and just based on, you know, whatever is natural, quote unquote, that misogyny is sort of a part of nature and we kind of just have to accept it and it's just the way things ought to be. But from what you're saying is that that's actually not true. It sounds like misogyny, or at least to some extent, obviously, that misogyny, especially in religion, sort of developed much later down the line. Yeah, and, and it's, it's hard to know how, how many conclusions to draw from there, there, there's this great, um, there's great debate about the matrilineal societies that, that existed before the rise of these high civilizations. So before Egypt and Sumeria and Crete, uh, you know, there were the, in the Neolithic period and before that in the Paleolithic period, there were, you know, women-led societies. Uh, old Europe is one of the terms that's been given to this by Maria Jambutis and, and others. I mean, there's, there's this whole huge debate and Terence McKenna writes a lot about this, about these, these, these mushroom consuming, you know, mother earth loving societies who are rather peaceful and egalitarian being replaced by these warrior, you know, alcohol drinking tribes that came later in the Neolithic into the bronze age. Uh, who knows, who knows, but it's, it's clear that, you know, reverence for the earth and, and women led mystery rites were, were absolutely a part of ancient Greece and I think a very significant part of early Christianity. Yeah. And I was wondering, how did you and Graham Hancock uh, first connect? Because I know he wrote the foreword for your, for your book. Right, this uh, many years ago, actually. <laughs> uh, too many years, it was this, uh, what year is it now? This, this is maybe six years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I, just, I randomly reached out to him after reading Supernatural, which is one of those books that you know, really changed the way I think about the past. Yeah. Uh, same here. Same for, for us too. He, he has one copy here and I have one at home too. Oh yeah. Yeah. We love that book. That was like literally, I think I read it for the first time in 2011. And that's just like, really, for me, that was so mind blowing at the time, but yeah, go ahead, Brian. Yeah. I, th I think I read it in 2008 mm -hmm. uh, at, this, at the same time I was, you know, trying to fill my head with all this psychedelic literature and it just completely transformed the way I think about prehistory. 
Uh, and so, so my book kind of artificially starts at the agricultural revolution, uh, but it was really Graham's work in Supernatural that just blew my mind wide open. So, I mean, I sat on that for a couple of years and, and finally mustered the courage to write him a, a random email. And he mm -hmm. responded, which is why I need to be better with, with, with my emails because uh, <laughs> I, I, know, I, know, I know what it's like. Uh, so I will respond to everybody at some point. <laughs> So, and then can you tell us a little bit about, since now I'm, now I'm interested too, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the trajectory and how your relationship with him developed? With Graham? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. He was, he was great. I mean, you know, I was looking for a little, a little guidance in, in terms of getting these ideas together. I'd never published a book. Uh, I'd never put anything online. I mean, to this day, you know, I never made a podcast. I never, you know, created a YouTube channel. I never had a blog. I never had a website. And, you know, this was just kind of my, my private, you know, hunt for the Holy Grail. Mm -hmm. And I kind of like it that way. Uh, but I was, you know, I wanted to get these ideas out into the world and was just asking for advice. And he suggested I write something for his website, which, which I did, which the first and only thing I ever put in the public domain. Um, I think you can still find if you Google, you know, Hancock, Murescu, religion with no name, it'll pop up mm -hmm. on his website. I think he published it in 20, 2015 uh, after my, my first daughter was born. Uh, so, so that, that was it. I mean, I just, I wrote that one article and disappeared and, you know, we, we kept in touch and anytime I had a question, I'd reach out to him and he was just, you know, couldn't be anything but, but, but nice to me and eventually agreed to write the forward and read the book, which he did uh, in detail. And he's just, you know, he's an, he's an incredible dude. Yeah. And what I love about his thinking is that, I mean, he was sort of the, pre I guess, I don't know if the predecessor is the right word, but he was sort of the originator or one of the originators of the ideas that, yes, like religion isn't just sort of like, you know, kind of created in the vacuum, that there are these sort of tribal roots of it. And what I loved so much about Supernatural, as I'm sure you did too, was that like he kind of showed as it's a little bit based on Terrence McKenna's ideas that kind of religion and just like intellectual thinking kind of co-evolved with these sort of psychedelic, you know, kind of medications or whatever you want to call them, these plants. And mm -hmm. so I remember reading in um, Supernatural how like the cave art, right? The connections mm -hmm. that he made between the cave art and the hallucinations, I guess the hallucinations or whatever, the experiences that they had was that the cave art essentially just did in itself, like um, outside of like the normal cave art, right? The cave art that was just like, you know, like these basic like images of animals, like the more sort of complicated ones, right? They were linked to these experiences. And you kind of see that like, when it came to sort of these higher level thinking that obviously it's hard to prove, but I think that it's a plausible idea that the higher level thinking of humans was certainly, at least at that particular point, connected to these experiences. Right. Just to tag what you were saying, like he, he would see images uh, or on the cave walls, like of uh, uh, human bodies with animal yeah. heads, right. things like that. And that related to different uh, statues and, and art that, um, uh, that had those kinds of depictions as well that were related, related to uh, psychedelic experience. Right. And it's interesting to see the connections that he made based on those kinds of finds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the argument has been this like, well, you know, it could have been imagination. I mean, it certainly could have been. I mean, we don't know for sure. But it's also interesting that a lot of the sort of those images on cave art, just like when we talk about like, you know, um, even stories that people have like of elves and uh, who else was there? They were um, what are like these little like nymphs and these magical creatures. These are all things that you see under like, you know, under these experiences or in these experiences. So my thinking is that it's such a good theory because you can kind of piece it together. And it's so easily plausible that like the ideas of elves or of mentors or, you know, kind of these just really weird creatures. There's a pretty good chance that they come from those experiences. And now we can test it, which is the mm -hmm. only thing I, I would add to this conversation. I love talking about supernatural. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think Graham was really onto something and, and he, you know, he was really digging into the research of David Lewis Williams, who's at the University of Watershrand in South Africa. And he sort of pioneered this idea of the neuropsychological model that there, there's some kind of connection between the ritual ingestion of these sacred plants, maybe fungi, and the depiction of these weird images on, mm -hmm. on the cave and rock art. Because I mean, what, what blew my mind is that it's not just naturalistic, you know, images of hunting. It's, it's therianthropes. It's these weird animal human hybrids. It's this strange geometry, what they call the entoptic phenomena that also appear in the visionary states. Uh, so what's interesting, I think it was like three weeks or, or a month ago, 
there was this discovery, archaeochemistry coming on board again to, te to test this stuff. So it's only from 400 years ago, uh, but it's the very first archaeochemical data that ties the use of psychedelics to rock art. Um, this was discovered in California. If you Google pinwheel cave, everyone should Google pinwheel cave. Nat Geo, CNN had a great article about it. Uh, they, they found the actual organic remains of Datura stramonium, which mm -hmm. is just ripe with these, these crazy tropane alkaloids that are hallucinogenic at the right dose. They were wedged into the crevices of this rock and, and, and beneath them, uh, the, the drawing of the actual Datura, the way, the way it blooms. Uh, so clearly there, there is some kind of connection to these, these plants and the rock art. It's only 400 years ago, but again, you know, was this happening 4,000 years ago or 14,000 years ago or 44,000 years ago? I mean, this is, this is why I thought Graham was onto something. Uh, and now we have the science to actually go and test it, which again, you, you're just, you're going to see more of this stuff, uh, not just from prehistory, but again, back to the sacred roots of where, of where we come from. Yeah. And I mean, I guess my next question might be a little bit basic, but I think it's still a reasonably good question. So in, in your sort of understanding of history, right, as you kind of see it, when do you feel like the shift happened? Because if let's say if we know this as a, let's say, hypothetically a fact, right, if let's say at some point, the mystery schools were kind of open to everybody and psychedelic use was sort of more communal and kind of more understood to have been um, this sort of just maybe not natural, but at the very least sort of uh, an ordinary part of life. When did that shift happen? That now is like just as a culture. And I mean, mm. even on the kind of grand scale for the world, I think, when did we become so afraid of them? I think it begins, in, I mean, it has to begin in, in the fourth century. Um, so, I'll, but I'll give more detail there. So we, we talked about the fourth century. This is kind of the transition from the pagan, the Gnostic, you know, the heretical sects into what would become mainstream Orthodox Christianity. It's when the pagan past is largely being erased and this new history begins, right? Uh, and so these practices, if they were, if they were there, uh, they go underground or they go into folk medicine, right? Or traditional healing. Uh, and they go into the witches, right? Of the late antique into the middle ages. And I spend the last two chapters of my book writing about that, which is fascinating. And then it pops up again during the inquisition and it's at that moment when, when women are, are mixing up a very alternative Eucharist, a dangerous Eucharist, and experimenting with the, the witch's ointment, uh, which we know from the literature, uh, the Pope's personal physician tells us in the 16th century was spiked with all these hallucinogenic plants and herbs, right? Uh, so we do know that something survives, uh, but, but the shift, the transition in, in terms of the cultural awareness of this stuff, I think it largely disappears during the Inquisition. And you know, the Inquisition was about a lot of things, uh, but one thing was about women and their use of drugs because they, they were seen as kind of competitors for the white magic of the Eucharist is what I say in, in the book. Um, you know, you were any, anything that didn't rely on God or the intervention of the church was seen as diabolical. And so all these images around witches and heretical sacraments kind of hits a crescendo, I would say like in the 15th, 16th centuries, we know the witch hunts go on long after that, by the way, until not very long ago. Uh, and so I think in that process, we, we forget in Europe that there was this sacred pharmacopoeia. Um, and it survives in the new world, despite attempts to also extirpate these sacraments from the new world, right? Things like peyote, uh, psilocybin containing mushrooms, ololuqui. I mean, this stuff does survive, but the inquisition, I mean, just really, in addition to lots of other things and generational loss of knowledge, uh, it all disappeared, I would say in the 16th, 17th centuries. Uh, and now, you know, it's, it's slowly returning. And so part of my book was trying to see um, when that transition happened and if it can be recaptured. Right. And do you think that there's any merit to the conspiracy theory that it's sort of about power and maintaining it, that if somehow sort of we're all taking psychedelics and it's going to be this sort of grand, you know, kind of revolution in the world that, you know, kind of the people in power would no longer be in it, kind of like maybe the Inquisition would have no longer been in power had everybody been on psychedelics? I mean, it's, it's hard to avoid that question, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's I can't say no, I, I, I can't. I mean, I don't think there, were, there was a dark room and this, this, this cabal, you know, behind the, the, the secret walls of the Vatican plotting this out. But I mean, you know, in, in the very last chapter of my book, I talk about the, the attempts, to, again, really to, to get rid of these sacraments. Um, and one of my favorite parts of the book is in the late 19th century, if you look at the very first federal action from the US government against these drugs, it wasn't cannabis, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't opium or, or cocaine, it was peyote, 
1890, um, I, I talk about this letter from the BIA that was written about the use of peyote on Native American reservations. And the, the head of the BIA uh, was saying that, that peyote was interfering quite seriously with the work of the missionaries. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so this, it, it didn't, it wasn't, uh, it was really dangerous stuff to Christian missionaries. This idea of alternative sacraments or this, this you know, this folk medicine uh, that managed to survive. Uh, and then, you know, the, here comes the war on drugs and, and now everything is kind of up for grabs again in 2020. And so uh, who knows, will we return to some kind of psychedelic renaissance? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, but um, yeah, I, I was wondering, by the way, how, how does it feel uh, for your book to be a New York Times bestseller, to be a number one New York Times bestseller? I, I, I saw that and I was like, whoa, that's, that's awesome. Um, as a writer, how does that feel for you? That's what I said too. <laughs> 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 Whoa, that's that's pretty awesome, man. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, no, I didn't I didn't expect it. Obviously, um, I, I think it would have been impossible. Uh, and Michael Pollan did, did did a great job introducing, and I thanked him for this introducing the publishing industry to the, this idea of psychedelics in modern culture. So I think I think that was a big part of it. But um, I you know it's it's very weird timing, very weird timing. Um, uh, and I, whatever happened in Oregon and this tipping point in the war on drugs uh, and cannabis being legal all over the country in many, many states, it's just, uh, I think it's very weird timing. When I look back over the 12 years researching it, I mean, I never could have anticipated the book coming out, you know, in this consequential election where drugs are suddenly being legalized, including psychedelics um, uh, in this, you know, this, this global pandemic. It's just, it's, it's, it's not anything I could have anticipated. Yeah. Would you, would you attribute it to also going on Rogan or it like it kind of helped, but it's not the biggest. Like, oh yeah, no, I mean, he was, that was amazing. I, you know, and you know, he and I just happened to have you know, similar interest in this stuff. Uh, one, one of the best, <laughs> one of the best comments I saw on the, on the YouTube video was that uh, this dude, meaning me, um, all he did was go to college and study Roganomics. <laughs> <laughs> like i engineered my entire studies to one day unveil it on the one place where it makes sense uh, uh, a good conspiracy yeah and then you know what's so like interesting and i guess really fascinating to me going back to graham hancock is the fact that he's been doing this since like the early 90s or probably even late 80s but he's been sort of writing about this stuff when it was super unpopular and when people just pretty much called him a crackpot and kind of dismissed his work altogether and i mean i'm sure now he finds sort of some solace in the vindication that like you know obviously now his work is taken way more seriously but man it must have taken some real courage so like especially fingerprints of the gods back in 95 it must have taken some real yeah. courage over in that book yeah, I, th I totally agree. And uh, totally honestly, I, I don't think my book took a lot of courage. <laughs> I, I it's a pretty, a pretty safe time to talk about yeah. you know, and, the, and the Catholic Church. Think, things are just different now, even than they were a couple years ago. Uh, so, you know, guys like Graham or Terrence McKenna, you know, writing about this stuff in the 90s or Houston Smith, Aldous yeah. Huxley, Alan Watts writing about this stuff in the 60s, mm -hmm. um, Huxley in the 50s. I, I quote Huxley in the intro to my book. I mean, that that's the kind of stuff that I really respect. Um, that, that those the, those are the real pioneers. Yeah, the Houston Smith was an amazing guy too. Um, so interestingly, I guess for me, I was actually so one of my old professors was a disciple of his. So really? um, I, yeah, I took um. So her name was Orlando Brugnola. She passed away about five years ago. Um, and so she taught an Eastern religions class where I went to college at John Jay College, and that's actually where I discovered Houston Smith. So she kind of would tell us stories about him. So at that time, she was. I think she said she was still somewhat in contact with him, but not so much because his health was declining at the time. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so she was telling us like stories about kind of like what he was like as a person and as a mentor. And I was like, oh, Houston Smith, that sounds like an interesting person. And then I looked into him and. I was like, wow, holy shit, this guy is like a legend. He's like a legendary figure in this field. Yeah, he is a legend. I quote him all the time because he called Eleusis and these ancient mysteries the best kept secret in history, mm -hmm. uh, which, which we use a lot on, on the copy for the, for the book. So he's a, he's a real guiding light for me. Uh, it's just an incredible, incredible thinker for whom psychedelics weren't controversial, you know, in, in, in the 60s. We, of, we often forget before the war on drugs, there were gentlemen scholars uh, talking about this stuff quite openly.
Right, which is so interesting because in, if you take a religion class, you will never read about them. Or it's like you might read about it in passing in some textbook, but you actually won't know anything about them outside of, um, you know, they'll cover Hinduism, you know, Buddhism, etc. Like, you know, kind of the mainstream versions of them. But there's like no sort of link between all of them in terms of the mystery schools. I mean, they'll, br they'll bring up once, like if you're learning about Vedic texts. Mm -hmm. and I got it wrong earlier in this conversation, but yeah, they would bring up Soma, for instance. Right. Yeah, I, I recall that I had an Eastern uh, Asian religions uh, class once upon a time. They actually well, a little bit. Yeah, but you're right. They don't they don't get into it. There's a lot of things that you don't learn classically that maybe that isn't uh, like there's a lot of essential knowledge out there that's not widely yet accessible. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. And Brian, what is your sort of perspective on the Gnostic text? Because I mean, at least from my understanding, uh, they kind of like substantially differ from like, you know, the major sort of canonical, the, the gospel, the regular gospels, the stuff that you would read in the Testaments. Uh, they are, um, as is John from, mm -hmm. from the Synoptic Gospels. But then the Gnostics are even, uh, are even more mysterious. I quote, I quote the Gospel of Thomas quite a bit right. in that notion I was saying earlier about the kingdom of heaven being here and now it's one of my favorite quotes from the gospel of thomas uh is that the the kingdom of heaven is spread upon the earth but 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 we do not see it the idea that you know the this concept of the afterlife and this is this is the real immortality key by the way it's not about psychedelics it's, it's this 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 real insight into the nature of reality the nature of space and time uh, and you find that in the gnostic literature that and which is crazy to think about two thousand years ago uh the, the, these guys were exploring you know hypothetical physics uh, but for the Gospel of Thomas, the, the real insight there is that, that, that time and space are illusions. The same kind of thing you can read in, in Plato, by the way, and the Neoplatonists especially. This is not just Eastern you know, uh, philosophy, uh, uh, Buddhist theology. This, this is really you know, at the heart of Western civilization. And it shows up in the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, the idea of trying to find timelessness, you know, that in dying before you die, this is where you find eternity. This is where the kingdom of heaven whatever that means, is really to be found. It's, and as Joe Campbell would always say, it's here and now and nowhere else. Where else, where else would it be? Why wait until you die? You can die in a sense right now. Uh, you can die right now and discover all these secrets that I think the mysteries were engineered uh, to initiate people into. Uh, it's a really fascinating concept. Wow. So is, okay. So this might be a misinterpretation, but is that what you're saying is that, that the mystery schools essentially weren't focused on the afterlife per se, but they were more so focused on what it means to live a good life now in the kind of here and now in the world. Uh, I think it was both, but I mean, again, thinking, thinking about it, um, when, once you pierce the, the illusion of reality, right. Um, there is, if there's no after, why talk about an afterlife? If there's no, if, if there is no past, present, and future, and these are constructs that the human mind develops to try and navigate space and time, if all that's an illusion, Plato talks about this. If all that is is an illusion, uh, what does that leave you with? It leaves you with this sense of the now, right? Uh, Tolly is the power of now. The sense of timeless. <laughs> this guy loves that. Yeah. You like Tolly? Okay. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. But I mean, you know, uh, I love him too. But this, the, the, you find that idea everywhere, man. Uh, and you find it in the Gnostic literature. You find it in Plato. This, 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 this encountering the eternity now. You'll find it from an atheist, which is why I write about her, Dinah Baser, one of these psilocybin volunteers in the NYU trials. Dinah Baser from Brooklyn. Uh, you know, she, she talks about uh, this being bathed in God's love and have this insight that every moment is an eternity of its own, right? This, this, is, this is the kind of mystical language she uses after one and only dose of psilocybin. It, that's the, the power of now straight out of New York. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, so pretty much if let's say if, I don't know, I guess if somebody were to kind of say that your book is a new agey or whatever, right? So it's like, it's sort of, um, I don't know, based on some metaph metaphysical claim of an afterlife or whatever, or of a heaven, I guess your response would essentially be no, like with the immortality key is actually about developing or establishing immortality in the now and the present. It's not about any sort of afterlife, because obviously the afterlife isn't really a part of this, right? The afterlife is sort of, um, there's no after as there is no before, right? There's only kind of like the present moment that we experience. That's, that's right. right? And yeah, and it's, I mean, I would, I would balk at the new age too. I mean, this, it's the old age. It's, <laughs> it's, it's my attempt to put, you know, a couple decades of Latin and Greek to good use for God's sake and, and, <laughs> and to try and, and educate what the Greeks were all about. And what the Greeks were all about was not what we often think about. Well, they, they were obsessed with death and they were obsessed with, you know, uh, a religion that today we would call more like science. I mean, they, they, they were obsessed with these traditions 
whereby these altered states of consciousness could be explored in ways that were repeatable and falsifiable. I mean, again, you know, peering through uh, the, the, that lens of reality to try and figure out what's real and what's not. I mean, th these were scientists, you know, we call them mystics. Uh, but the, they were essentially trying to chart hyperspace, man. Uh, there's there's nothing new age about that. Right. Yeah. And if you even go back to the Socratic text, I mean, essentially when he's asked what happens in the afterworld or whatever, he's like, I don't know. Like, what are you asking me for? I can't tell you that. <laughs> so, and right, and this is sort of like, a, I guess, sort of the main advocate of the mystery school. So, I mean, he's even telling you this initiate that, yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. Why would you ask me? I'm just a human. <laughs> <laughs> we're, all, we're all just humans looking for meaning, aren't we? Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Alan, before we kind of uh, head out, any final questions for Brian? Oh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, uh, where could we find you? Good question. Uh, so I'm not going to try and spell my name, but if you go <laughs> to uh, theimmortalitykey.com, Mm -hmm. uh, it'll take you to my, my personal website and you can find all the media there. And I think it links to my social media and you can sign up for, for updates um, on the sequel and, and film updates and all kinds of fun things. Oh, wait, I do have a question then. What's the film that you're working on? So we're, we have this, this docu-series in development and we've been talking to the networks and streamers mm -hmm. about this. So hopefully we'll have more news in the new year. Okay, but you can't tell us about the topic yet? Uh, I mean, well, it would, I mean, largely follow this, this, this hunt for the grail. It, it would follow, you know, the, the book is kind of the foundation um, of, of what I've been trying to do, especially looking into the archaeochemistry, right? And, but, but combining all the sciences and the humanities in this multidisciplinary effort to kind of unlock uh, the best kept secret in history. This, I'm, tr I'm trying to fulfill Houston Smith's legacy here. Awesome. <laughs> Brian, this was such an awesome podcast, man. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much for, for coming on and for all of the wisdom and insight. This was just really a trip. Cool. Same for me, guys. All right, man. Thanks we'll soon. talk to you soon. Take care. Okay. Peace. Bye. All right. That was Ooh, awesome. What a trip, that man. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. So if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell. <laughs> and then also on YouTube. And then also you can find us at the O4L Online Network at O4LOnlineNetwork.com under the STM podcast section up top. All right, guys. Thanks again for watching and see you next time.